Um, but we're in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to begin at verse 31 uh, in our Bible study today as we're traveling through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, which, by the way, was written to Jewish people. That's why you see, one of the things you see in there is that he calls it the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God, because to write to Jewish people, you don't use the, the name of God. It would uh, be offensive to them. So he uses the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we have been traveling through Matthew 24. It was Jesus' end times chapter. And then in chapter 25, he starts talking about what the kingdom of heaven is all about. He makes comparisons. And now in verse 31 of chapter 25, now he's going to bring uh, it to an ending, which is final judgment, judgment. And so that's where we're heading today at, for the end of chapter 25. And we're going to probably get into a little bit of chapter 26, which changes the direction a bit too. But verse 31 of chapter 25 says, uh, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on his glorious throne. Now, this is a Bible study, so if you have your Bibles, uh, be ready to maneuver around just a bit, just to show you what's going on here. First, let me tell you right here that this is the final judgment. This is the end judgment. This is, this is when Jesus Christ comes back in his glory in the second coming, and things are going to happen. Now, notice Jesus, what he says. He calls himself the Son of Man. He will call himself that with somewhat regularity. But what does that even mean? And is there a significance to the Son of Man? There absolutely is. So if you keep your finger right here and you turn over to uh, Daniel chapter 7 in your Old Testament, Daniel 7, <clears throat> you're going to find in chapter 7 verse um, 13, and 14, watch the statement here. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Ah, oh. so now you see the messianic term, and here comes the son of man whom Jesus called himself. And it says, and to him, verse 14, was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So now we see that Jesus has been given all the dominion. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is this Son of Man. And now he is the and now he has judgment and rulership and dominion and authority. You see it over all the nations. Now that makes sense. Why Jesus would call himself therefore the Son of Man in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 25. Because it says in verse 31, back to Matthew 25, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now remember. The rapture was the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. That's where Jesus comes in the clouds. He never touches down on earth. Seven-year great tribulation, of which the last three and a half years are pure hell on earth. It culminates at those end of the seven years with Jesus coming back. 
But this time, he's not going to just stay in the clouds. He's actually going to touch down on planet Earth. And let me show you um, um, the Old Testament prophecy that explains this. Uh, turn with me to Zechariah, right near the end of the Old Testament. You don't have to go very far to your left if you have a regular Bible. If you have an app, you're going to get there quickly. But Zechariah chapter um, 14, and I want to show you verses 1 through 5. Watch this. This is about the second coming of Jesus, to, especially specifically to Jerusalem. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and houses plundered and women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then, when all the Antichrist's forces are rushing upon Jerusalem and things are crazy and they're doing all kinds of evil, it says then, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now watch, verse 4. In that day, what day? The day of his second coming. In that day, his feet, whose feet? Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives. So some of you have stood on the Mount of Olives. That opposite, uh, the Valley Kidron beneath you, you can see the Golden Dome, and you stood on the Mount of Olives looking across. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. That's amazing because there is a fault line that's been discovered there. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. When Jesus returns in the second coming, according to that, he will come down, touch down on the Mount of Olives. Question, when Jesus ascended and left earth after the resurrection, where did he ascend from? Acts chapter 1, the Mount of Olives. So he's going to come back and touch down in the very same location where he lifted off from. And when he comes back, the mountain will split. It will save, he will save the Jews and all of his holy ones. That's every born again Christian, every person who died in faith in Yahweh in the Old Testament. All of us will be returning with them. That's Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. We will be coming back with them in that glorious, glorious day. And back to Matthew 25, verse 31, that's what it's talking about. Isn't that amazing? We come with him in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. This will be a throne of judgment. Now, <clears throat> let's uh, read on. Verse 32 of Matthew 25. All, and all means all, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now there's this um, uh, this uh, separation and there's an identity that's given. There are sheep and there are goats and there's separation. In those days, sheep were more valuable than goats. 
and they always had more sheep than they had goats, which it gives me an inkling of since we are the sheep and these are talking about saved people, that maybe there's going to be a lot more saved people than we think. Hopefully so, huh, in the day of judgment. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king, now who is the king? The son of man, Jesus Christ. He is the authority. He has dominion. He is the judge. He will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God the Father has been preparing a kingdom for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are bona fide followers of him. For I was hungry. He's given qualifying statements here, but we got to qualify the qualifying statements. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. He's talking about the righteous, the, the sheep. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Huh. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? Now, I need to make a statement right now because this is a parable about this and you don't want to start making all kinds of side theologies out of it. Because it's easy to look at this and think, oh, so I'm going to make it to glory into eternity with Jesus by doing good works. No. This speaks strongly of relationship with Jesus Christ. And verse 37 says, Then the righteous. Now, I like that he puts in there righteous. You and I are not righteous. Only one is righteous. Now, to qualify that, keep your, your tab here and turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Just so we make sure... And I make sure that I'm not teaching something that's incorrect. Look at 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. To be sin on our behalf. What a great, great thing. So that we might, you and I, followers of Christ, might become, we might become something. What might, might we become? The, excuse me, righteousness of God in him. See, I'm not righteous because I'm righteous. We could have, throw out the question, what's the problem in this world? Well, the, the problem and the answer to the problem in this world is, I'm the problem and so are you. All of us humans are the problem. But, and we're not righteous. Only one is righteous. Only one is good. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, he puts, uh, he applies his righteousness to our lives and now we are the righteousness of God in Jesus not in myself uh-uh not in myself so this parable back to Matthew 25 is not talking about doing good works to get into eternity no the righteous are those who have received the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus just see I just allowed the Bible I use a rule of interpretation let the Bible interpret the Bible that's what you do 
Here's what I like about 37, verse 37 of Matthew 25. He says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? You know what a great communicator can do? He can do what Jesus just did. He anticipates the thoughts or the questions in the minds of the hearers. And that's what a good, a really, really good communicator can do. As he's laying things out, he will anticipate, because he's thought through, the questions of the hearers. And Jesus, is, he does that magnificently. Verse 38. <clears throat> and when did we see you a stranger? See, the question continues that he's asking for them. And invite you in or naked and clothe you. When did we see you sick, Jesus, or in prison, or, or come to you, Jesus? Now watch verse 40. The king, who's Jesus, will answer and say to them, here's the answer, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, or even the least of them, you did it to me. Now stop. This, this brings up quite a few uh, ideas and, and realities in this verse. <clears throat> First off, it's talking about you know, the uh, first two commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. In First John, John goes to painstaking lengths to show us that my love for God is proven by my love for everyone else. If there are people, I don't love them and I don't want to talk to them, it's the obvious fact that you don't love God. It's a fact. Because they're created in the image of God. Well, you don't know what they're like. Or they're, it doesn't even matter. God still loves them. And in John, the disciple John says, you, your, proof for, your love for God is proven in the fact that you love everyone. Now, some of us have heard that so many times, right over our heads, and we justify our anger or our attitude towards people, and we think we're self-righteous in it. Well, it's a self-righteous, but it's not a God-righteousness. And we're wrong in that. Now, when he says here, <clears throat> he says in verse 40, that you did it to these brothers of mine. Now, think of what he's talking about. This is the end of the great seven-year tribulation. Antichrist has been hunting the Jews down and everybody else, but Maybe he's talking about people that did help Jewish people on the run. These are the brothers of mine. Jesus came up through Jewish ranks, these brothers of mine. It's possible. And then he adds, even to the least of, and to the least of everybody. Now, that, that's an interesting statement, too. <clears throat> now, in other words, he's saying, you helped hurting people. You helped people in need. These are good things to do. Now, I read this statement a while back, and it, it's kind of stuck. And, and I want to share it with you. I want to get this right. The, the person said something like this. Don't get uh, caught up in the Jesus who came 2,000 years ago. You know, don't get totally caught up in that. And don't get totally caught up in the Jesus who is to come, though we do study that too. We're not saying to not do those things. But get more caught up into the Jesus of right now. What does that mean? He said, 
when you did it to the least of these or to my brothers of mine, to people, you did it to me. There's a Jesus of right now. When we do good deeds and help people that need help, it's helping them, but it's directly helping Jesus of right now. Did you ever think about that? When you reject, wound, hate somebody, you're hurting the Jesus of right now. We need to get caught up in the Jesus of right now because that's what he's talking about. <clears throat> now, now he's going to hammer down verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left, these are the goats. These are, by definition, according to scripture, non-followers of Christ, people that don't. They can say they believe in God. They say, oh, I believe Jesus. But are you really following him? And I need to lay that straight out. Are you really following? He's going to say to these on the left, these goats, depart from me. Now, that's, that's, that's a heavy statement, but it coincides beautifully with earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and beyond, where people said in, on the day of judgment, but I, I did all these good things for you. I did this, I did this, I did this. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no intimate, personal, day-by-day -day relationship. Okay, so you did some good deeds here and there for some people. But I didn't know you. And Christianity is not a works-based religion. It's a personal relationship experience with the God who's the creator of the universe. Hmm. But he says, depart from me, accursed ones. Wow. I like when he uses the word accursed, not that I'm happy that people are accursed. But would you keep your finger here, since it's a Bible study, turn to Galatians chapter 3 and watch this. He says, depart from me, you accursed ones. Guys, because of sin, we're all cursed. We're born under the curse of the law. And the only way out is Jesus Christ. The only way out. Now watch chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed, in other words, bought us out of the slave market of sin. He redeemed us from the curse, curse, curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. He became a curse for you and I so, because we were cursed because of our own sins and therefore when we put our faith in him the curse was lifted because he took the curse and now we're not a cursed people but back in Matthew 25 and verse 41 he's saying to the goats the accursed people the non-followers of Christ the rejecters of God you're cursed you had an opportunity to have the curse lifted but you said nah don't need that so verse 41 Accursed ones, he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's <clears throat> talk about hell, guys. Jesus pulled no punches when it came to hell. Um, some, at some point, somebody's going to tell you something like this. How can... A good God send people to hell. There's an assumption in the question, hear me closely. The assumption in the question, how can a good God send people to hell? 
the assumption is that God sends people to hell against their will. No, he doesn't. Never has, never will. People go to hell because they want to. It's their choice. It's their choice. Never forget that. If you want to know how good our God is and show people how good our God is, I want to show you a few things. Look, look back at two chapters to Matthew 23, verse 37, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem in that last week, and he says, one of the days he says this, he says, 23, 37 of Matthew, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. In other words, all the people I sent to wake you up, to tell you the message, and stones those who are sent to her. Watch his heart. Watch the heart of God. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. See? God, through Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, they tried their, tried their best every day to, to prevent people from going to hell. So when people say, how can a good God send people? No, no, no. You, there's an assumption that God sends them there against their will. God doesn't. In fact, I'll, I'll give you another verse. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, way to your right. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. <clears throat> Hebrews, James, um, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Peter. I mean, 1st, 2nd Peter. There's only three, there's only two Peters over there. 1st, uh, 2nd Peter 3, verse 9. 2nd Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's God's heart there? God's heart is that I, He doesn't want anybody to end up in hell. He, he doesn't want anyone to go there. He's not willing for that. That's why He came. That's why God went way out of His way and took a gruesome terrible beating on a cross, died, was buried, rose from the dead to make a way out. How can a good God send people out? No, no. There's an assumption in the question that, that says that people go there against their will. No, everyone goes to hell uh, uh, according to their own will. Listen, why would an unbeliever even want to go into heaven? Heaven's filled with worship. A non-follower of Christ doesn't want to come to church and worship God. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you're going to be worshiping a lot. An unbeliever would never feel comfortable there. You and I right now in our quarantine state, we are missing live worship with the, with the worship team on stage. Are we not? We, it's, it's just part of our DNA as born-again believers. But a non-believer, they don't like that. Why would they want to go where that's happening? They wouldn't. So God's never going to send them there against their will. At the end of verse 41, it says, into eternal fire, and notice it never ends, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was never prepared for humans. Humans choose to go there. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42, for I was hungry. Now he continues the narrative. And you gave me something, to, gave me nothing. He's talking about the goats. I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. And no relationship with the goats, no relationship with non-followers of Christ. I was a stranger, 
and you did not invite me in, you never accepted the invitation for salvation. You never did. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Those are pretty heavy statements when you take contextually what he's saying to these goats, to these non-followers of Jesus Christ, those who never wanted him. That's why you need to get your life right if you're living out in the fringes here. Verse 44, then they themselves also will answer. And he, he anticipates the question again. He's a great speaker. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? or sick or in prison, and did not take care of you. Well, when did this happen? Verse 45. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, well, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, who he by definition gave earlier, you did not do it to me. Wow, man. Wow. Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, <clears throat> if Jesus says there's eternal punishment, there's eternal punishment. And I, people say, well, I don't believe in hell. It really doesn't really matter because you're not the creator of reality. Jesus warned many times about hell. You know the Jewish teachers back then, some taught that hell was temporary and some taught that they just burned up and that was it, not Jesus. Jesus teaches that it's eternal torment and once you're there, you're there. And that's it. Now, let me do the first five verses of chapter 26 as a lead-in for next time. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. So it's midweek of the last week of his life. And the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now we understand what season it is. This is April now, as we know it. And he talks about Passover, a yearly event. Josephus would write that at Passover, they would slaughter 250,000 sheep. That's a lot. Now, <clears throat> Passover. Passover, we know it began in Exodus, in Egypt, the night before they were delivered from slavery of 400 plus years. They were to take the lamb's blood, put it over the door, po- put on the door post, the lintel, it would drip down, and so you see blood, 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 blood down there. It's a picture of the cross. See, Passover the angel of death would come in and the firstborn was going to die unless you had that blood on the door. And when the angel of death came and saw the blood on the door, he passed by, passed over. And you were saved. And you were delivered. And that was a a, a type, a picture of of something that was coming in the future of Jesus. Because he is now the Passover lamb. Now, think about this. That Passover back in Egypt pointed towards two to two and a half million people being freed from bondage. The Passover, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, our Passover 2,000 years ago, points towards possibly billions of people 
being delivered and set free. It's a much, much bigger Passover exodus than the original exodus. You ever think about it like that? And there he sits talking about it, knowing that he's the Passover lamb. Wow. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest at that time. And um, it used to be that it passed down into families, but when the Romans took over, they started assigning. And so Caiaphas is the high priest because, obviously, and by relative too, I should say, because his father-in-law, the previous high priest, Annas, this, Caiaphas is the son-in-law. So, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So Caiaphas is the high priest. And he was the high priest at the time of Jesus Christ, somewhere around 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. In that time frame, that's when he, he was high priest. Now, now, now watch this. Verse 4. And they plotted together um, to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. I, I really like that verse. Because you see, it, it's a demonically motivated thing to kill Jesus because they want to they take him, they want to seize him, Steal him and kill him. The devil, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, verse 10. So you, you see a parallel there. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Why does the high priest and all the people around, why do they want to kill him? Well, his father-in-law, Annas, he runs the temple. And on the temple, we've talked many times about how they were ripping the people off. In many ways. In many ways, I don't have time to go back over that, but it was a big ripoff, and everyone knew it, and they were powerless to change it. They didn't care about people. They just cared about making money. It was like a big, big mafia ring on that Temple Mount, just making money illegally off the people. And so Jesus, when he came and overturned the tables of the money changers, remember that? He upset their operation. Oh man, they didn't like that. You don't upset their money operations. So now, among other ways, reasons they hate him, they really hate him now because he's ruining their business, their illegal business. So they want to kill him. Verse 5. They want to kill him, but verse 5 says, But they were saying, not during the festival, I mean, not during Passover festival, otherwise... A riot might occur among the people. Oh, man. They just gave us some wisdom right there. The enemy can't take you down very easily if you're in fellowship. The enemy is less prone to go on full attack against a follower of Christ who's in fellowship in a local church with other people even joining a life group. Yeah, right now things are suspended, but it's, we're going to get back there. Satan knows that person's less likely to go down, but he also knows that Lone Ranger Christians who make statements like, you know, I don't need to go to church uh, to be a Christian. And you're right, you don't have to. But you're all by yourself, buddy. And you're not part of the body of Christ connected and Satan's targeting you. And he's probably spun about 57,000 lies in your head that you believe because you're not with other believers. Now, 
Let me just show you one last verse, and I'm going to end right there. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Old Testament, just to prove this point. Deuteronomy 25. I really like these verses because they really kind of convict. When they were traveling through the desert, there was a certain group of people called Amalek, the Amalekites. They were arch enemies of Israel as Israel was traveling through the desert to the promised land. Verse 17, 18 says this. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Who did he go after? The people way at the back by themselves straggling. Don't be a straggler. Don't be out of a fellowship. Some of you have been out of a fellowship for a long time. And when everything gets back to normal, get back into a fellowship for the rest of your life. Because Satan loves to chase after the stragglers. And don't think that you're strong. None of us are. None of us are by ourselves. That's why there's the body of Christ. Well, I'm going to pause right there. You can share this with whoever you want to. And hopefully it blesses you during this time that we are in quarantine. I'll be coming to you Friday at 1 o'clock with a devotional live on Facebook. And then, of course, this weekend, we're going to continue traveling through, our, um, through Psalm 23. Our teenagers also have great programming today and our children's ministry on the weekend. Make sure your family tunes into all those things. So, hey, God bless you. And we'll hopefully see you sooner than later. Talk to you later. Bye.